Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Arva Hansen, and I lead the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we discuss migration and development in Asia with Jonathan Rigg and Marta Bivanada. Professor Jonathan Rigg is Chair in Human Geography at the University of Bristol. He is a highly influential development scholar and has, among other things, done groundbreaking work on migration and development in Southeast Asia. Marta Bivanada is a research professor at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo and a leading migration expert. She's done work in, in South Asia, as well as in Norway and Poland. And among many other things, she leads the ERC starting grant project, Migration Rhythms in Trajectories of Upward Social Mobility in Asia, studying migration and the formation of new middle classes in Karachi, Mumbai, Hanoi, and Manila, a project where Jonathan serves as external advisor and where I, I guess I should mention, participate as a researcher. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Jonathan, a recent seminar organized by the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies and Migration Rhythms at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo, you highlighted that migration isn't necessarily good or bad for development. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yes, of course. There's a long-running debate about whether, to put it simply, migration is developmental or anti-developmental. So scholars and practitioners in the former camp, sometimes called migration optimists, and the latter migration pessimists, and they have a desire to characterize migration as one thing or the other. And I think that's misguided, and I say that for three reasons. First, because there is the question of developmental for who or for what, for those who stay or for those who move, for sending or for receiving countries, for communities or for households. And I think depending on the focus of the question, the answer may well be different. A migrant may sacrifice her or his happiness and future in the interests of the wider family. Scholars have coined terms, for example, like dutiful daughter and martyr mother to capture this sense of individual sacrifice. A community may be stripped bare of its working age population, but individual households will be cash rich. The second reason why I think this desire to characterize migration as one thing or the other being misguided is because migration reflects structural conditions, and these structural conditions determine migration's outcomes. Migration often occurs because of a lack of opportunity in source communities. And the question then becomes, why do people have to leave home in order to prosper? In China, the average worker in Shanghai earns over 10 times more than the average worker in rural Gansu. What explains such deep structural inequalities that create the landscape of and for migration? And the third reason is because I think too often studies of migration are held hostage by the manner of their framing, by which I mean a focus on production rather than on reproduction, on the economic effects rather than on the cultural and emotional affects of migration, and on those who move rather than on those who stay. So for all these reasons, I think that desire to, if you like, pigeonhole migration as one thing or the other doesn't really capture the complexity of the process. Thank you, Jonathan. And Marta, I'm curious, how does this resonate with your research, for example, from South Asia? 
Thanks. I think many of the points that Jonathan raises are maybe not universal, I'm not sure, but certainly also apply to South Asia in the same way that they, they would to the context he's been studying in as well. And I think increasingly there, there is an acknowledgement within migration research that we need to focus more on immobilities as well as mobilities. I think that's something which has come maybe in the past decade uh, as something that is a research focus more explicitly and that we need to decenter migration in order to understand migration. But also more importantly, I think that migration is only a part of social change like so many other things. And in order to understand social change as a migration researcher, I would argue we need to also understand migration, but also only to understand it as a constituent part of, of social change where other factors most of the time are more important, in fact. So I would say that it's, it's very applicable. Also reflecting on the sort of the South Asian versus maybe Southeast Asian, other Asian contexts, including China, I think that the sort of rural, urban migration, mobilities, but also intertwinement is something which is uh, is a shared trait probably in terms of how migration interacts with development. It doesn't shape it probably, but interacts with it certainly. But then I think also sort of in, in, in defense likely maybe of the focus on migration and of much of the research that I've been doing on remittances, which I think again is, is relevant in many places around the world. It doesn't disagree with Jonathan's points, I think, but I think it, it highlights the ways in which migration can be an important, for some families, lifeline, for other families, opportunity mechanism in terms of boosting your incomes through the spatial mobility of, of some or all of the family members for a longer period of time or shorter period of time. So I think remittances are a sort of interesting, very specific focus area, which maybe helps disentangle the salience that migration actually can have in more specific and concrete terms, rather than the more sort of elusive general ones that sometimes in this optimism-pessimism debate come across. Thanks. Jonathan, one of the things that I've, uh, of the many things I should say, that I always found uh, inspiring in your research is this insistence on combining a view towards macro trends of development with what you call everyday geographies. And one of the many fascinating things that you've done is to, to follow a Thai village over many decades, the same village. Could you share some, some of the insights you get from such an approach and, and from this particular study? Yes, Arve. I undertook my PhD fieldwork in two villages in the province of Mahasarakam in northeast Thailand way back in 1982, so 40 years ago. And since then, I've undertaken three follow-up studies tracking the same households and their descendants First in 1994, then in 2008, and most recently, just last year, in fact, in 2022. So we've got a kind of 40-year span of studies on which we can draw. I should maybe also say that my approach has always been to hold theory in empirical solution. So in other words, I kind of cross-check and validate what I think should be happening in places like rural Thailand and Asia against what I find is happening. So thinking about your question, got, I think, two comments. First of all, I've got to admit, I spend a lot of time playing explanatory catch-up. So in other words, recalibrating my ideas in the light of what is happening on the ground. Most obviously, I think there was no sense in my early papers, based on my fieldwork in 1982, that within a few years, Thailand would be lauded as an economic miracle. Changes in the global and national context sort of rippled back fundamentally to transform the lives and livelihoods of farm households in Banot Dan, Banta Songkorn. And there's very little prescience, scarcely any foresight in my work at the time, just lots of hindsight in the work that came later. Second, I find increasingly that theories that draw on the historical experience of the global north to be inadequate in explaining conditions and transitions in the global south. 
So those two villages, Bangnonten, Ta Songkorn, they haven't simply followed the route that other countries have taken. Um, Thailand's now an upper middle income economy. Many of the children of the men and women I interviewed in 1982, they've got 12 years of education, even degrees, and yet surprisingly few have sold their land. If you like, a reverse transition seems to be underway, wherein land holdings are becoming smaller and more numerous rather than larger and less numerous, as occurred in the global north. And that's a theoretical surprise, a historical anomaly, if you like, and for some, of course, a policy problem. So I find myself in these ways moving between the minutiae of individual experience in places like Banon, Ta Songkorn, and broader processes of structural and historical change. And this longitudinal study of these two villages enables me to do that. Great, thank you. Moving from the rural to the urban, which is, of course, also a very common migration trajectory. One of the central mega trends of migration in Asia is obviously urbanization. And Marta, in your new project, you are particularly interested in understanding middle classness or the formation of new middle classes in cities. Could you tell us a bit more about the background and aims for this new migration rhythms project? Thanks, Salva. To start with, I'd like to just say that the aspect of Jonathan's work you already mentioned and he was talking about is also one of my favorite aspects of his work. And I find that this sort of very fieldwork-based approach, which is longitudinal in, in the real sense, also was one of the inspirations for how I developed this project, which also has a focus on looking at the past, but not with the benefit of having been there 40 years ago, but trying to retrace what might have been happening which has its methodological issues, because I wasn't there. I couldn't see what happened in 1962 or 1982. But the project, in the spirit of Jonathan's work, in that sense, in terms of trying to understand what has been happening at different moments in time. And as you say, this urbanization megatrend is something which has been happening over time. So the background for this project is the basic fact that, however you define them, the middle classes in Asia are growing, and they're growing fast, despite the crises that we've seen in recent years with COVID, and despite multiple different crises in different contexts. But if you look at the global scale, the middle classes are shrinking in North America and Europe. They're unfortunately not growing at a very fast pace in sub-Saharan Africa, Whereas in Asia, they're profoundly growing and growing fast, especially in the lower lower belts of the middle classes, so lower, lower middle classes, which means that people have not only escaped poverty, but many people have escaped slightly more than just poverty. So that's a fact. Now, at the same time, it's also a fact, as I mentioned before, that remittances exist. And again, Asia, Asian countries, uh, people in Asia are both very salient in sending and receiving remittances. And, and both of these topics are ones that have been studied quite a lot, uh, but not really in conjunction with each other. So that's kind of the background for the project to try and bring together knowledge production on uh, migration and remittances, internal significantly, as well as international within Asia and beyond, and this trend of, of the growing middle classes and to see what are the connections, if any. And, you know, we have some hypotheses that there are some connections and we're trying to, to figure out more about them. So the aims of the project really are to understand then more specifically what types of mobilities and immobilities in terms of distance and duration, whole households or just particular members of households play a role in this growth of middle classes in, in these four select Asian cities. Thank you, Marta. And I know the project is in the middle of doing fieldwork now, so I'm, I'm sure we will learn a lot more soon. Jonathan, I know you have a, a strong interest in agrarian change, and you just talked about rural Thailand, um, but you have also spent much time in Asian cities. 
could you tell us more about the, the, the interconnections between urban and rural livelihoods in contemporary Asia that you've, you've written lots about in the past? Yes, uh, of course. In um, contemporary Asia, I'd say that even when people reside in rural areas, they're often implicated and sometimes deeply so to urban places, conditions and activities, and of course, vice versa for that matter. And the desire to put people and households into either a rural box or an urban one obscures the degree to which lives and livelihoods cross between the two. So rather than full transitions from rural to urban, I found from fieldwork, not just in Thailand, but Vietnam, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Laos, that households often keep a foothold in rural areas, even while they engage with urban work and living. And I'd say that given that workers can be laid off with little or no warning, keeping a rural home makes a good deal of sense. The task of caring for children, for the elderly, often occurs in the countryside, even while the job of working may be situated in urban or peri-urban zones. So we need to ensure that we're not straight-jacketed by the categories, so rural, urban, farm, non-farm, that tend to organise the way we think about the world. And of course, we need methods that permit these rural-urban relations and interdependencies to be revealed. Uh, so to give you an example, in China, around two-thirds of the population are classified as urban. But of these, 375 million are a floating population of migrants with rural huku, so household registration, who do not have access to the full benefits of urban services and living. Many have left their children to be cared for in their natal villages. They cannot buy city housing. They don't have access to better urban schools. They are, in effect, second-class urban citizens. They're in the urban, but are they of the urban? Have they been fully accepted as urban citizens, or are they just urban denizens? And I think such multi-sided households that bridge the rural-urban farm-non-farm divide are characteristic of the countries I study, and trying to capture that sense of in-betweenness has been a sort of element of my work over recent years. I've learned from listening to both of you talking about migration that migration is not only about leaving, uh, it's also about staying. What kind of impacts do you, do you see on those staying behind in migration processes? Perhaps, Marta, can you go first? Thanks. That's a really good question and, and an important one. And there's there's been quite a bit of research on it. I think, interestingly, it relates very much to what Jonathan was was just saying about how we understand the sort of entities that we're studying uh, so it comes back to how do we define a household and how do we understand that in the places where we do research? And I think it's it's then about, you know, how do you connect the different people and places that in effect are connected in what is going on and how you're able to also capture that. It's this uh, dialectic relationship, right, between people who stay and go, which is interesting, both if you're studying migration and also I would argue even if you're not studying migration, you're kind of missing part of the picture if you go in and speak with a family and and you're not really aware of the fact that actually there's someone else somewhere else who plays a significant role on this. But in terms of what we know, again, I think it, it sort of tallies quite well with what Jonathan was saying, that it's not a question of good or bad. Uh, so, for instance, there's quite a lot of research on, on the impacts of migration on families who have uh, a male migrant leaving and the, the impact on migration then, say, on the female who is staying behind and whether or not that might be, for instance, empowering or not in different contexts. And what we see that it's very contextually dependent. 
rather unsurprisingly. And it means, for instance, that in a country like Pakistan, if you have uh, the father and husband of the household going to the Gulf to work, which, which of course happens not infrequently, uh, what that means for the household financially could be quite similar. But in terms of the role of the women in the household, it would matter a lot whether there's a brother who actually just takes in the, the household head role or whether, in fact, it is the wife, mother, woman who then, in effect, in practice, becomes the household head, in which case uh, there could be much more profound sort of social types of change which take a long time, but which starts to, to actually become visible. And then, of course, whether you assess those as good or bad is, is also a, a normative question, I think. So, again, not simple to say whether they're good or bad, but certainly there are impacts of migration uh, you know, for, for the people who are left behind. And, and I think, as, as Jonathan mentioned, there are also emotional sides to this and the sort of care sides to this, which increasingly are being researched. And there's a lot of ambivalence, I think, you know, both among those who stay and go in terms of the more emotional aspects of this as well. Yeah, thanks, Martha. And, and Jonathan, I, I guess you already touched on this, but anything to add? Well, just to, um, I suppose, echo what Martha was saying, we do need to connect up those who are mobile with those who are not, because the two are tightly implicated one in the other. You know, the reason why some people move allows some to stay and vice versa. The fact that some can stay permits others to move and so on. And, and there's been a if you like a mobility bias in migration studies. And I think Marta's project is sort of addressing that. The other thing to say is we see the effects of migration in sending communities. Um, a term that's been coined is remittance landscapes. I mean, I can walk through the fields of Nepal, Thailand, Vietnam, and I see the effects of migration inscribed in the fields and landscapes that I encounter. Unused land, the shift from transplant rice agriculture to direct sowing, broadcasting. These are outcomes of labor shortages, the absence of particular types of labor, men rather than women, younger people rather than older people. And we can see that shaping landscapes in really substantive material ways. So it's really a call to make sure that we don't think of migration as just the study of migration. Now, migration and development in Asia, that's, that's a huge field. And much has been said and written on this topic, much of it by the two of you, of course. But what would you say are now sort of the core questions to investigate? Thanks. Again, it's, it's a big question. Thanks for asking, though. The first point I want to make relates to where we're sort of approaching this question from. And I think from, from the sort of context of scholarship published in the US, uh, North America, European types of Anglophone spheres. I think from that perspective, rather than the say Asian studies perspective, there is a challenge in that there's way too much focus on migrants coming to Europe and North America. Not to say that isn't interesting or important, it is of course, but in, ter- in numerical terms, in volume terms, and in terms of the impacts for development in, in different places in Asia and for people in Asia, I think there's a slight sort of uh, skew in the knowledge production, if you like. And then I think there's a um, in terms of the sort of next steps in which questions are important to investigate, my sort of maybe not so exciting answer was, would really be that I feel the most pressing need is to connect more dots. And it's to connect the dots firstly between the study of international migration and internal mobilities and immobilities within Asian contexts, and to try and understand those interconnections better. I'm not saying no one is doing that, but I think there's more work to be done in that area. And then again, to also connect more of the work which is on more classic development studies in terms of livelihoods inequalities, poverty, 
where I would still argue that in some parts of development studies, there is a bit of a sedentary bias, which would be the, you know, the counterpart to the mobility bias in migration studies. So I think at the sort of meta level, those would be the sort of areas where I feel like there's more work to be done. But of course, there could be more specific questions and, and contextual topics. And I think there's a bit of a skew in terms of which countries and which areas of countries are actually being studied and or where there's research published accessible in English about those areas. Just from work in Pakistan that I do, I know there's a skew regionally in terms of which areas there's more studies on and which there's less. So I think in geographic terms, there's, there's more work to be done there also maybe to foster work in areas where there isn't that much knowledge actually available yet. What's your take on this, Jonathan? It's the sort of question I struggle with. I suppose partly because I often find I've asked the wrong questions. And I mean, just to kind of repeat what I said earlier, I get into the field, I start talking to farmers and the question which I think was absolutely key sitting here in Bristol in the UK is not the one (laughs) that really has much traction when I get out into the field. But that said, I, I think sometimes it's worth returning to old questions and asking them afresh in a new era under different conditions. So, for instance, in the 1970s, so when I was studying as an undergraduate, a lot of attention was paid to issues of migration, class, and capitalism in the countryside. And such studies, explicitly class-based studies, are pretty thin on the ground these days, which is why I think Marta's new project is so very interesting and so important. But I'm not really answering your question. So here are a couple of thoughts. First, I think there's scope to dig into the links between migration, precarity, and the middle-income trap. I think some really interesting processes are underway in China, for example, at the moment. And China is such a big player when it comes to these sorts of questions. And second, I think um, the issue of how migration is implicated in evolving geographies of production and reproduction or production and care against the backdrop of climate change. So how is climate change going to change those relationships I mean, that comes back to something that both Marta and I have talked about, this kind of production care or work care binary. But I think if we can inject climate change into that question, then that could be quite interesting. But just to end, end with this question is, as I say, often what I think are fascinating questions sitting in my warm room in Bristol are not the ones people are asking on the ground, in the field, the ones that are really important to their lives. So these are sort of things you go into research with, and then they get adjusted, adapted, changed in the light of the real world and inverted commerce offers. Yeah, so a call for empirically grounded work there. Thank you. Um, Now, I'm staying with the huge questions. I know we're not supposed to be predicting the future, but having the two of you here, I can't resist asking this. So what's your take on the likely main migration trends in Asia the the coming decade or so? I mean, I think for the third time, as I've already admitted, my track record in predicting or anticipating the future is not great. That said, I do wonder whether we might have reached, indeed, maybe already passed what you might call peak globalization. With that in mind, and thinking about migration, it may be that migration, both domestic and international, becomes driven less by opportunity and shaped rather more by distress. And again, not least maybe due to climate change. Again, to return to my answer to, I think, your first question, Ave, this makes migration no longer a productive search for work in the context of proliferating opportunities and heightened levels of mobility, but instead a survival strategy 
against the backdrop of increasingly squeezed rural livelihoods. I mean, of course, in saying that, I hope that once again, I'm proved wrong and that actually it's not going to be like that. But that's sort of, well, my attempt to look over the event horizon, if you like. Interesting. Um, what do you think, Marta? Again, it's a big question. I wouldn't dare to speculate or, you know, predict, but I have some thoughts on it, which I can share. First of all, when I was thinking about this question, I, I thought about a question we asked in interviews in Karachi last week, in fact, for the Migration Rhythm Project, so preliminary field work. And again, I can concur with Jonathan that indeed, it's not always the questions you think in your office are the most salient ones that are, although some of them thankfully were. But we also ended up asking people a little about popular culture and these types of things and, you know, chatting with people in their homes. We were asking them which types of TV dramas they might watch. And the idea was maybe there's representations of different types of middle classness, perhaps mobilities or immobilities on different TV dramas. Nice question to ask people, which is fairly laid back. Now, not so surprisingly, perhaps, but slightly overwhelmingly, among the completely non-representative group of 16 families we interviewed, there was a lot of not Pakistani TV dramas being watched, a lot of consumption of these types of programs via the internet on phones, iPads, etc., right? And as you probably would be able to guess, Turkish dramas featured, so did South Korean dramas. So I think in terms of imaginaries of where one is placed in the world and where one might want to go, that was interesting. And it's, it's also interesting in relation to thinking about one aspect, main trend, not sure, but one aspect of migration in Asia that is growing is student migration. Now, the destinations for student migration in Asia are very interesting. Of course, it's, it's mainly national, right? You know, you go to the big cities to study, etc., or to the smaller cities. It's internal. But also so many people are going to China to study from so many different Asian countries, including countries like Pakistan. And then there are Chinese students, of course, going everywhere. India, very similar, a lot of mobility internally, internationally with student migration. There's also a lot of, of students going in, in interesting directions. There's such a lot of international student mobility within Asia and then also between African and Asian countries as well. Perhaps more people coming from African countries to Asian countries than, than the other way around for now. But I think in terms of one area to look out for in terms of migration trends in Asia, my hunch is that student migration in and within and beyond Asia is, is one such area where we could be more interested. Otherwise, the main answer to this type of question, I think, is, you know, look to China. It's such a huge player that, you know, that's probably what the only thing we should be interested in in terms of volume, right? Uh, so that would be one other answer. And then the final thing is what Jonathan was also mentioning already with climate change. And I think that's something we don't really know exactly how is going to play out over the next two, five, ten, not to mention 20 years, right? I think the recent floods in Pakistan and the, the kind of effects on coastal areas of Bangladesh, but also other many other parts of Asia do have a significant impact on migration in different ways, very much in terms of crisis, distress, leaving because you have to right now. Very often that's short distance, shorter term. But we are seeing a lot of relocations that have to be more longer distance and whether or not people want to become longer term. So I think that's certainly an area which is important and where I think we need to understand better the, the interconnections between different types of, say, drivers of migration, including climate change related ones, and to not keep those into separate silos. I think that hinders understanding of, of both migration and climate change. All right, thank you. I, I think perhaps we need to schedule a new talk a few years from now when, you, when you're further ahead in the Migration Rhythms Project. Because with that, we reached the end of this, this talk, which I at least have really enjoyed. Uh, so Jonathan Rigg and Marta Divanadal, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. My name is Art Vansen. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.